Hi there. Thanks for showing up. I'm Josh. This is Dharma Punks New York. We'll have an interesting evening talking about stress management techniques. For those of you who live somewhere in the Philadelphia region, looks like we'll be journeying down there to do a day-long retreat in June. The information will be posted pretty soon if you want to join us there. And I should probably make a pitch <laughs> for my uh, livelihood. Uh, I'm entirely supported by Donna. I don't charge anything for the teaching and counseling. So it's entirely um, just uh, up to you if you would like to donate the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC. That's Punks with an X. And um, the PayPal button is on the website and the podcast site, which is dharmapunksnyc.podbean.com. And there's also a Patreon page you can look up, which is also the information on the website. So thanks for that. And tonight, talking about stress management, when we talk about uh, stress, there's obviously two kinds of stress. To use a very uh, colloquial one would be stress that's okay for the body physiologically and another kind of stress that certainly isn't. I'll also be covering it from Buddhist perspectives as well as contemporary uh, clinical insights into what we can do to manage stress and then we'll be doing a meditation which hopefully will help us address stress as well so yeah so let's see how this goes um so when we talk about stress we're generally referring to an activation of the sympathetic nervous system where the brain perceives some kind of threat or challenge that uh, initiates a response and at first, the response is a startle response associated with the secretion of epinephrine in the brain, and uh, epinephrine is essentially adrenaline. So um, what happens is at first, the uh, our attention focuses, our hearts beat faster, our arteries contract, our blood pressures rise, the muscles in our stomach tighten and our our senses sharpen such as uh sight hearing uh and um other senses adrenaline despite um what many people think is not at all harmful uh, we pay to see scary movies we pay to um go to amusement park rides that are can be scary people like to do scary things in terms of rock climbing and driving cars at excessive speeds and uh, most of the time uh, when the stress stress the external stress full situation ends the adrenaline subsides and we've had a titillating thrill and it can feel Adrenaline at first can feel very pleasurable. It can feel at times even uh, provides a sense of efficacy and a sense of power. So ideally, 
the threats or the challenges or the environment that that leads to the stress response comes to a pass and so we stop secreting adrenaline and uh, in about uh 15 minutes the body returns to normal it's all good but what happens if we constantly perceive threats in our environment and i don't mean consciously i mean there's unconscious regions of the brain uh, that are subcortical we're not aware of them i'm talking about regions such as the amygdala the pag the brain stem uh, that are constantly um, in the background uh, essentially monitoring uh, all the incoming uh, stimuli for any any sense that there might be a threat present and sometimes what happens is we have chronic stress long-term cortisol activation when um, when adrenaline runs out eventually and it can run out pretty quickly um when we're in an ongoing stress full event uh, adrenaline is replaced by cortisol which keeps us alert keeps our muscles tense keeps us in a state of readiness prevents sleep um and unfortunately there's nothing other than if you're literally in a situation where your life is uh, for a long period of time in jeopardy there's really no benefits for long-term cortisol secretion in addition to the exhaustion the anxiety and stress that leads to crash states of depression there's weight gain there's disrupted digestion there's loss of appetite um, chronic stress is associated with intrusive catastrophizing thoughts high blood pressure uh, artery clogging deposits it attacks the chief memory region of the brain the hippocampus and long-term really long-term chronic stress can be associated with um frontotemporal dementia damages to the immune system panic attacks and because it diminishes the immune system there's also uh the possibility that it can lead to uh cancers um chronic stress makes us overreactive and patient irritable and less likely to bond well with others it increases antisocial behaviors in short there's nothing good about it <laughs> and if you'd like to have a dispiriting uh read just type in chronic stress into google and just you could spend the rest of your life reading horrifying clinical studies and outcomes i'm not going to uh sit here and try to persuade you i think most of us are well aware that chronic stress is not actually a state that we should be uh, it's a state that we should take seriously and address so why do some of us experience chronic stress well there's so many reasons i'm just going to list four uh the first of course is 
uh, if there is a constant external stressor, people who live in crime-ridden neighborhoods, people who are in countries at war, I'm sure there's a lot of chronic stress right now in Ukraine, pandemics uh, associated with stress. So we all went through a highly stressful period recently. Financial downturns, political instability. These are all environmental factors that are associated with chronic stress. But then there's also personal life events, um, conflict with one's uh, partner or with one's family, loneliness, um, not being able to make ends meet or struggling to make ends meet, met, meet, <laughs> ends met, uh, abusive workplaces, unrealistic work demands, chronic health problems, loss of a loved one, sleep deprivation, a classic stressors, imprisonment, and of course, being unhoused is an ongoing chronic stressor. The third reason why we can wind up with chronic stress is there's evidence that amygdala volume is partially heritable, which means it's there's some genetics to it, which can be linked with greater degrees of hypervigilance and disordered affective processing. That means we're less capable of regulating emotions and more prone to sympathetic activation. And then my fourth, when I was reflecting on this, would be the long-term outcomes of adverse and traumatic events earlier in life. People who had early neglect, experienced abuse, uh, um, ongoing shaming, grew up in alcoholic uh, households, uh, memory is imprinted in early life into the amygdala, much less in the hippocampus, and the amygdala is context-free. And so the midbrain, if the if a trauma is encoded primarily in the amygdala, remains constantly vigilant. It doesn't know that the threat has passed. The hippocampus, which forms later, uh, has the capability of time stamping trauma and letting us know that the traumatic event is no longer, it contextualizes it and lets us know that yes, it happened, but it happened in the past. It's no longer happening now. Unfortunately, during some traumas, especially childhood traumas, people tend to dissociate. And when you dissociate, there's virtually no hippocampal involvement in the memory of the trauma. It's all encoded in those deeper regions. So those are the primary reasons we might find ourselves. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, reasons and causes. So let's look at a couple of Buddhist insights into stress. And you don't need to look any further than the second noble truth, which is uh, Samudaya, the cause of stress, the Buddha said, is Tanha. Tanha is the craving an escape for things we cannot escape from. 
the first noble truth, the Buddha says, no matter how you live your life, you're going to experience old age, sickness, loss. You're not going to get everything you want. You're going to experience separation from the loved. And you're going to eventually experience death. So these are all painful events that are inevitable. But it's the nature of our minds, of course, to try to avoid these inevitable events. And so we do that by chasing after um, and clinging to uh, solutions that don't work. We chase after money, tribal status, popularity, fame, trying to create perfect bodies. And of course, the most popular is seeking unending short-term pleasure as a kind of attempt to create a sense of protection from the uh, inevitable pains, losses, disappointments that are inherent to life. It's the nature of mind to seek a sense of safety and status as um, defenses against life's unreliability, even if these states are very, very short-lived. And there's a reason why they're short-lived, which is um, not only does buying a new iPhone not really protect us against old age, uh, sickness, uh, loss of the love, but we only receive the dopamine that rewards the endeavor while we're hunting. But once we acquire the object that we're searching for or the state, the dopamine immediately drops off. That's the thing about evolution. There was no reason to keep secreting pleasure and motivating uh, neurotransmitters after we had accomplished something. So the moment we buy the new shoes, the iPad, the um, we uh, acquire something or we, um, what happens is the dopamine drains away. So we get home and whatever it is we've sought no longer has that excitement, that shine, that, you know, it has, it loses its sparkle. Uh, dopamine uh, essentially stops secreting because if it, it didn't, there would be nothing motivating us to go out and hunt again for more um, things that originally helped us survive, but today don't really help us survive and only cause disappointment when ultimately we still wind up stressed, anxious, worried, dealing with isolation, loneliness, whatever. So we're left essentially contracted and tense. Essentially what the Buddha is saying that a, a primary cause of um, stress is that we don't accept life on life's terms, that we're um, all addicted in some way or another to some endeavor that we've created unrealistic expectations around not even conscious expe emotional expectations that if only I 
if I work harder, if I'm, if my body is more attractive, if I'm funnier, if I travel more, if I whatever, then I won't be subjected to the inevitable. Uh, the Buddha has a list of sorrow, lamentation, grief, uh, sadness that arise just by having a human existence. So the Buddha says as a way to limit stress, we need to downsize to just learning to live with what we really need to survive and then expend the rest of our energies instead of trying to consume and amass and uh, achieve status, obviously, to uh, learn how to appreciate and find peace with what we have right now, right here. Sounds like a good idea to me. Another major theme of the cause of stress is uh, throughout the Dharma, the Buddha mentions the uh, the um, painful outcomes of self-fixation. In the famous Sabhasava, he says, thoughts like, what will happen to me in the future? What is my true nature? How do I compare with others? Creates, in his words, I love this, a wilderness of views, a thicket of views, a contorted, writhing, burdensome views. Self-fixation is essentially, in the Buddhist, the Buddha's um, view, uh, unendingly uh just leads to uh, deleterious outcomes. It's not helpful at all. And there's actually now a mountain of evidence that self-referential processing activates cortical midline structures in the brain, which activates the default mode network. And the studies of Killingsworth and Gilbert at Harvard showed how just how miserable we all are when we are in default mode operation, when we're not paying attention to what we're doing, we're not engaged in a task, we're, our minds are wandering, and they're wandering to thoughts about ourselves and what's going to happen to me in the future, and what other people think about me, and why aren't I accomplishing more in life. And if you'd like to read some wonderful writings on it. Ethan Koss's, uh, Koss, I think that's his last name, book Chatter, uh, has a first chapter on just all of the uh, unending stress that default mode operation of the brain creates and just how much inner chatter and churn uh, it's responsible for. When we're in self-referential ideation, when we're thinking about ourselves, especially speculative thoughts, all of which are the miracle growth of stress, it diminishes activation of your lateral task positive network. And that's the network where you're happiest. We are happiest in life when we're paying attention to an external task in the present moment. That induces something I hope you've heard of called flow states. Flow states are when people are the most happy, for example, and the most content. When we're doing tasks with our hands, especially um, art, if you're drawing or doing something that's artistic with your hands, if you're doing a craft, whether it's 
sewing, knitting, embroidery, woodworking. I don't know who anyone who does woodworking, but I keep saying that as if that's something that still exists, but I'm sure people do. Um, music. I play, I'm teaching myself the saxophone. Sounds pretty awful, but I love every moment of it because when I'm playing the saxophone, or any self-referential thoughts just completely vanish like uh, it's uh, quite uh, delightful. Um, gardening, uh, anything that uh, especially exposes ourselves to focusing on nature, cooking, you name it, find an activity that gives you feedback from your environment, uses your hands, keeps you engaged in the present moment, and you are going to be happier, less stressed, and you're going to find that your mind is less prone to self-referential ideations. Uh, a classic example of task positive is meditation, especially um mindfulness and concentration practices so we're going to be doing those a little later now contemporary research shows that there's other factors that are responsible for chronic stress and i'm going to list them and talk about some ways we can address them one is um human the perceptions of being in control of our environment rather than actually the actual reality of being in control just the perception of being in control is a very important buffer against negative stress and it's no surprise that so many of our compulsions like uh, obsessive compulsive disorder are linked with fe creating feelings of control trying to protect against anxiety and stress if you give someone control over when they're going to get a mild shock, the uh, activation of their amygdala is far less than if they're simply informed a shock will occur, but they have absolutely no control over when. So one of my favorite examples of this, courtesy of uh, the great Robert Sapolsky, I love this examples. Check this one out. You've got two cats, two cats, two rats, excuse me, two rats in two separate cages. And rat number one is in a cage that has a wheel that it can run on, spin on, treadmill, not a treadmill, just a wheel that it can run on. And the rat gets to choose when it exercises and when it doesn't. The second rat is in a cage that's entirely a wheel, and that wheel is hooked up to a motor that's driven by rat number one's wheel. So whenever rat number one uses its wheel, rat number two has to exercise. It has no choice over when and how much exercise. It simply has to exercise as much as rat number one. Now, we might think that, well, both rats are getting the same amount of exercise, therefore they should get the same benefits of cardio and the same degree of some stress reduction because, as we'll see, running for rats after can be very stress-reducing. But it turns out rat number one that gets to choose when it runs gets all of the benefits of exercise, but rat number two gets none. 
all it winds up with is the toxic effects of stress. So it's doing the same degree of muscle expenditure and, you know, all that as, you know, it's just constantly, but it's it has no choice. And therefore, it starts to experience both the classic symptoms, the arteriosclerosis, the, dimini- the enlarged amygdala, diminished uh, ability to override a uh, stress response and all that. So... Even in rats, loss of control is a big issue. The perception of control is so important for us. Loss of control can unconsciously remind us of childhood because that's when we have no control either. And if your childhood was not a an unending, gleaming, wonderful panorama of joy and happiness, if there was ever any moments of of worry about the sanity of your caregivers or a sense of unreliability of attention, then the loss of control and work can evoke that those earlier still unresolved emotions. Loss of control is associated with learned hopelessness and depression. So what do we need to do? Well, workers who can either choose how they go about uh, accomplishing tasks, or even can set some boundaries with employers in terms of um, how much they work or uh, the order in which they do tasks, can significantly diminish the stressfulness of their work. Um, of course, this only works if the stress is moderate. Uh, when somebody is really in a situation over which they have no control, then trying to add a perception of control will not in any way help. So, you know, if somebody has a horrible illness or uh, just uh, lives in a terrible neighborhood and all that, telling them that they can simply set boundaries or establish some control is not going to really alleviate any stress for them. Another source of um, reducing stress is predictability. If you give someone a warning, like a red light flashing five seconds before they receive a shock, they can prepare. You know, they can prepare how they're going to respond whether it's breathing out or relaxing their body or looking for a soothing stimuli or whatever. But those who don't know when a shock's going to come, there's no predictability. Just like loss of control, experience extensive or significantly more stress. So those who don't know when their partners, uh, especially while dating, they don't know when someone is going to text them, or if they're looking for a job, when they're going to get a response from a potential employer, or when an employer in a job they've had is going to send them messages. If you don't have a sense of predictability, then the stress is far greater. Dogs who don't know when they'll be fed experience far higher cortisol levels than dogs that have a predictable feeding schedule, even though they eat they might be fed much less food than the dogs that are fed, but unpredictably. So over the course 
of any job having a predictable routine. And this is why for all stress-related and mood disorders, it's helpful to have routines. If we do things in the same time of day and develop a sense of predictability in our life, it actually helps deactivate these subcortical regions of the brain because they no longer have to monitor as much the environment around them. People who are in a new relationship, especially those with anxious attachment, are almost invariably uh, benefited by making some kind of arrangement with their new romantic partner saying, it would be great for me if I knew we were going to talk on Mondays and see each other on Fridays or whatever, because when you add a sense of predictability, then again, the hypervigilance and the environmental monitoring decreases. So that's pretty much one of the first things I tell people that I work with who have anxious attachment, which is to state as soon as possible or create some kind of schedule for connection, but don't use texting because texting tends to be a mode of connection where people just out of the blue send messages and not only they rife for misinterpretation, but they keep people's autonomic nervous system constantly monitoring their phones for new information. And that is just not good. In fact, scrolling uh, social media uh, feeds are, is a notoriously stressful endeavor as well. Any endeavor where you're going to get pertinent stimuli, but you don't know when, is not helpful. There's enough unpredictability in life as it is. You might as well try to get some predictability. Um, of course, the duration of the warning or predictability is important. Beyond a certain period of time, telling someone they're going to get a shock, for instance, in 15 minutes, that's too long a duration. You're going to be just miserable for 15 minutes. But if you tell someone in the next minute you're going to get a shock, well, then they can prepare. But a long duration is not going to help. Like saying, I predict you're going to die sometime in the next 40 years. That's not helpful. Um, anyway, uh, on to another. Um, being able to discharge tension. Muscle tension is a classic reaction to, to ongoing stress. It's the way the body guards against injury and muscles tense. And chronic stress results in what's called um, constant, uh, not only constant state of firing, but uh, essentially it induces burst firings of action potential from the basal ganglia. You don't have to know what that is. Essentially, the motor region of your brain after long-term chronic stress, just start sending these readiness potential messages down nerve fibers and your muscles tighten. And the result is tension and migraine headaches and musculoskeletal, uh, musculoskeletal pain and pain in the lower back. There's a great book by Sarno, Healing Back Pain, that talks about just how 
stress is the culprit in in virtually the bulk of all back pain. Um, it, and it literally causes the physiological damage that people see on scans. But the ultimate cause, Sarno, who's a famous back surgeon noted, was actually stress. So how do people discharge stress in, in muscles? Well, that's a process called neurogenic tremoring, which is basically you shake it off. Animals shake all over after they've been hunt, they've been chased by a cheetah or they've engaged in some kind of large group interaction. Um, so animals generally will lie on their side and just shake it off or tremor or tremble and release it. But human beings, after we get in a tense argument, don't do anything to discharge the stress that's built up. And so even basic activities like going up against a wall and pushing against it to discharge the stress and the aggression maybe that we feel or strangling a tower towel. Some people used to uh, have nerf bats that they'd hit or punch pillows, any way to discharge um, the stress that's built up paired muscle relaxation in yoga where you lie down on a mat and you squeeze the muscles in your legs and then release squeeze the muscles in your thighs and then release all of those are classic forms of neurogenic release rats in cages that can run after a stressful event on a on a wheel far less stressed than rats who are in cages with no less wheel and finally, social support. Social support, we are an innately co-regulating species. Our autonomic nervous systems sync when we're with other people to their autonomic state. So one of the fastest ways for a human being to regulate stress is to simply connect with another human being. It's not even a process that's based on words. It's based on... Um, what's the word neuro neuroception neuroception is we unconsciously monitor other people's breathing other people's facial expressions their body language their movement and we unconsciously mimic them uh it's just part of our species we bond by unconsciously aligning with other people's states. So if you want to get stressed out, which I don't recommend, you just go into a room with, where lots of people are really anxious, like a room of stockbrokers or whatever during a downturn. You'll probably wind up pretty stressed, even if you weren't before you walked in. On the other hand, if you go into a room or go to a friend's house who's just finished meditating, the chances are you'll experience stress reduction. Talking with others about emotional events also helps remind us that it's not personal. And when we know that experiences isn't personal, then we experience far less shame. And all of those, along with it, diminishes loneliness. And if you want to read about the connection between loneliness and stress, uh, John Cacioppo, of the University of Chicago, John and Stephanie Cacioppo did 
all the incredible research that just shows how much lack of social connections is responsible for chronic stress and other um, bad health outcomes. So all of this is to say, whether it's setting boundaries in work or in relationships, stating needs, adding predictability to life, uh, avoiding self-speculative thoughts and finding something to do with our hands, doing some kind of exercise to release the constant muscle tightening. Um, there's no magical tool to reduce stress. It's you have to select one or two and just keep doing them every day and literally choose to do them every day. And then over time, uh, not only will our vulnerability to chronic stress diminish, but we'll also be able to then use other tools more successfully. And we will ultimately uh, have happier, more peaceful, more relaxed lives. And that's the point of it, isn't it? So uh, that's my talk. Uh, I hope you got something from it. And um, now what we're going to do is a meditation, because as we know, meditation induces task positive states, and that switches off the default mode operation. So we're going to try to engage our lateral prefrontal cortex in meditation so that we won't get lost in self-referential ideations. So find a really comfortable seated position and try to, uh, you don't even have to try to, do remove yourself from your video, whether it's turning off your video feed or just removing yourself from in front of the camera so that you don't have to be self-conscious when you meditate. Only I have to sit here and try to meditate while on screen. The rest of you have permission to Find a super comfortable spot, and if you want to lie down or recline in a couch, it's all good. We're not strict here. And bringing our attention into our bodies, Generally, I find it's helpful to find an area, a region, a set of muscles that are not clenched. Some area that feels relaxed. just to land, to provide an anchor. And if you can't locate an, um, a part of your body that feels 
comfortable to reside, no matter, we're now going to do some paired muscle relaxation so that we can hopefully release some of the low levels or moderate levels of stress that build up during all the unresolved events of life. So take a moment and just squeeze your toes, both left and right, and then release. And then squeeze, tighten the arches of your feet so that your feet kind of form a C shape. And then release... Clenching both calves really tight till it feels like they're just, it's almost uncomfortable and then release. And you'll notice as you do this that after we do uh, a tension and release, the muscles feel much more relaxed because we're releasing the action potential that's stored So doing that with your thighs, clenching, releasing, clenching the buttocks, and then releasing. You can pull in the belly really taut and then release. And just continue up your body, up the arms, starting with the hands. And then once you're done with your arms, you can move on to your torso and then neck and then face. Just tension, tightening, tightening, clenching muscles and releasing. So at this point, to see if you can bring your awareness to an area in your lower abdomen, 
And as you breathe in, see if you can locate some sense of energy flowing up from your belly up towards your chest and sternum. And as you reach the the apex of the in-breath where the chest is expanded and the belly is expanded, and then as you begin to feel the exhalation commence, then you start to perhaps feel the chest releasing and then the energy flowing back down through to the belly, which releases. And if you can find or experience the the breath as energy moving up from the belly up towards the top of the chest and then the breathing out as a release. Eventually we can sit back and observe breathing, respiration like waves arriving across a vast expanse of ocean, finally arriving to shore, and then the waters receding. The breathing body can begin to take on the same kind of rhythm of waves coming in, or if you're riding on a in a boat on a body of water, the lifting and subsiding. And at first you might want to emphasize this sensation of energy moving up with the inhalation and then releasing with the exhalation. But Ultimately, it's just noticing whether you're breathing in or breathing out. So let's just do that for a while. And every time you drift away from observing the sensations of breathing in your body, just gently bring your awareness back and just notice whatever thought hold you away and just promise it that you'll return to it once the meditation is done. You're just asking for a little time to just be engaged in appreciating the body and the breath that's been keeping you alive. And while you do that, the mind is so much more peaceful. 
if we can really learn to settle with the breath.
So in the Buddha's mindfulness of breathing, once we just know when we're breathing in and know when we're breathing out, we use the breath to see if we can create feelings of comfort and to brighten the mind, which means to just find a state of awareness that feels luminous or um, a kind of relaxed while attentive state. We're neither hypervigilant, worried, anxious, nor are we drifting off into sleep. We're just settled into the present and just using the breath means we can incline the breath, especially the length of the out-breath, to be longer, to relax us, or we can deep deepen the in-breath to become a little bit more alert. How you breathe is kind of like the most efficient way to steer your nervous system. It has such profound physiological influence, how we breathe more so than pretty much any other tool. And while you just bring awareness to the breath, you're taking away attention from other topics, concerns that it might, at first might seem intriguing, but ultimately over time are either disappointing or outright uncomfortable. So to see if you can find a way to breathe that is makes you even more comfortable. more settled, perhaps awake or relaxed or whatever state. We feel is attainable at this time.
And finally, the last couple of minutes, if there's anything that's pulling you away from really just releasing into this moment, if there's any uh, unresolved issue, conflict, concern, worry, situation that feels like it's too important to let go of, just see if for these few minutes we can just surrender, let go, and just give ourselves permission just to spend a few minutes being fully present, you can always, in a few minutes from now, pick them back up, but just give yourself any kind of window by just surrendering, letting go any disagreement we have with life or other people. Just for the sake of experiencing a break, 